Ag State of Mind, episode 36. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Greetings and welcome back to the Ag State of Mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I am your host, Jason Meadows, and today on the show, we are starting off our series featuring beef producers. I am super excited about this series. I made a post earlier this week about how excited I am for this for this series. Um, beef is something that as many of you well know, if you listen to this podcast, that it is why I am involved in agriculture in the first place. Um, beef is my industry. Um, I am a very p- proud beef producer. Um, my dad owned a sale barn, a cattle sale barn, ran a cow-calf operation for years. I, along with another one of my brothers and another one of my sisters, um, kind of carry on this tradition in our generation and we're very proud of it in our family and very proud to be Missouri beef producers. So today on the show, I am very excited about this guest, um, Ryan Goodman. He is a wonderful beef advocate. He has a wonderful podcast, the Beef Runner podcast. He is Beef Runner all across social media. Um, He is just one of the most knowledgeable people about the beef industry in general. And I am very proud to call him a friend and have him as a resource um, for this podcast. What we do today is we spend a little time talking about the supply chain issues that are going on with the beef industry um, as a result of COVID-19. The things that are happening always seem to be changing by the day, by the hour sometimes. So uh, this this I wanted to get this released as soon as it was uh, as close as possible to the actual recording date. um, So we wouldn't be giving you outdated information. So this was recorded just last week. So really excited to get this out to you guys and listen and maybe put some put some anxieties at bay a little bit about what's going on with the beef industry and this is just the first in a series that I'm not even really sure how long it's going to be I you know I know it's going to go through June it may probably will spill over into July we've got a lot of great guests from within the beef sector to talk about and a lot of different um, a lot of different points of view too that's what I think is really cool about this Um, I've got Tyler next week, who is a direct-to-consumer. Um, he has Southern Roots Ranch, where they sell beef directly to the consumer. I'm going to have it on a couple of weeks. My friends Matt and Raquel Stubblefield um, of Brush Creek Valley Farms, another really, really great, really cool um, direct-to-consumer marketing um, and then just the list goes on. Um, just some really, really great people coming up. And I will keep you informed as we go along, along on my so tag along on my social media. Um, I'll keep it up to date on, you know, who's coming next. Really, really excited for this series, guys. So here we'll go ahead and get into the interview with my friend Ryan Goodman. All right, Ryan, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time tonight to, you know, kind of have a short notice recording. So I appreciate you being flexible and coming on here with me tonight. Hey, yeah, no, any, no problem. Anytime to 
anytime I have the opportunity to speak beef cattle and, and uh, just shoot the bull, maybe I always enjoy that. If you're anything like me, like you start talking about cattle and beef, it's hard to get you to stop. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the things I say working in the ag community. Um, you know, a lot of people are worried about getting people to tell their stories. And I'm like, you know what? Farmers and ranchers are natural storytellers. It's just yep. a matter of how long that story is going to go. Right, right. So you and I actually, I, I got to thinking about this. As far as people who have been on the podcast, who I've met in person, I think think I can count it on, I've had almost 40 episodes, 50 episodes, and I think I can count on one hand the number of people I've actually met in person, and you're one of those people, so you're in an elite crew there. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I was, I uh, got to see a cattle industry convention uh, right. earlier this year. Right, right. So uh, it was really cool to meet you there, but uh, go ahead and, and tell everybody who you are and, you know, the work that you do, and we'll kind of go from there. All right. So I guess the easiest way to sum up what I do today is agriculture advocate. Um, I grew up in the industry. My family's got a cow calf and stalker operation, pretty sizable there in Northeast Arkansas. And so um, growing up, that's pretty much all I knew. In fact, my vacations were to Amarillo, Texas to see our cattle in the feed yards. Um, you know, that's, that's about as far as our travels every winter or as far as we could get away from the, from the ranch. And Throughout the years, I went to school at Oklahoma State, uh, Tennessee, studying reproduction and nutrition. I love feeding cattle. I've worked at several feed yards um, out in the Panhandle region. Um, but more recent years have taken me working with different associations. And so I've gotten to move up in Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, work on different ranches, and now um, working nationwide with cattle farmers and ranchers and really trying to help our community to tell our stories because consumers today have so many questions about what it is that we do, the product that we raise. And so I'm pretty lucky to be able to have the opportunity to work um, with people all across the beef community, helping us to tell our stories and, and better understand how we can communicate what it is that we do with people that have questions um, about agriculture today. So do you find yourself mostly working with, you're working with producers and, and getting to them to be more open about telling their story? And we all know the information age has, has exploded on us and I feel like the other side of the world, the people, the consumer side got, gets way more information than we were putting out. And I think, I feel like that's kind of the job that you're doing is getting people to push more of that information out there at a, that that's of quality, but also that's, that's trustworthy and reliable. Right. You know, as I was working on ranches and feed yards, I was telling my own story about what I was doing on a daily basis on farms and ranches, but I'm lucky enough now to be a little bit behind the scenes and working with not only farmers and ranchers, but people all across the supply chain, um, all across the beef community, anybody that would be involved from pasture to plate. Um, that would include chefs, retailers, dietitians that I have the opportunity to interact with um, and really helping them to just, just be stronger communicators and maybe have the confidence um, to share their stories, you know, people in agriculture are not always one to brag. And so right. really trying to convince them that, you know, our community that it's not bragging, it's being advocates, because as you said, there's so much information out there, so many people that are telling stories that we haven't been there. And right. if you're not, you know, at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, every the, the world just got so far ahead of us, I think. And I think we're kind of, we're doing a much better job, thanks to efforts of people like yourself that are, you know, getting out and, and, and encouraging producers to tell their story. But I still think we're kind of playing catch up because 
um, people were going to get their information from somewhere, even if it wasn't necessarily reliable. And I, I think a lot of people have been fed a lot of misinformation, um, maybe not so much of a fault of their own, just because that's the information that was so easily accessible. And us being able as producers to tell a more accessible, transparent and reliable story is, is crucial to the future of our industry. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, you know, unfortunately, having some experience working in media relations or that issues management area, you see that the negative headline gets a lot more attention than a positive yeah. story. Um, it gets a lot more clicks. It gets a lot more engagement. Um, in fact, I was recently talking to a social scientist in episode 42 of my podcast, just like mm -hmm. the science aspect of that and how deep down we can dig into that. So, yeah, we've got a positive story to tell, but I think it's it's understanding how to get a part of those conversations so that you can help people to sort through what is fact and what is fiction. Sure, sure. And, you know, no better place to tell it than straight from the source. Right, exactly. You want those people that are out there in the field doing it every single day to be accessible to people who have questions. And a lot sure. of times today, that social media and agriculture isn't always the most comfortable on social media, but over the past decade, as I've been involved, you definitely see that evolve um, to where we have a lot more farmers and ranchers online today. Sure, sure, and that's a good thing. So the reason I wanted you to get on tonight and, and have this, I've, I've been wanting to talk to you on a podcast a lot more about what you do, because you do a lot of endurance athlete stuff, a lot of running, but I wanted, it just happened to be, I, I want to talk to you about a different thing tonight, and that is the beef supply chain issues. You know, the fear that is going on. People are, like you said, they, they don't know what exactly is going on, and they are, it has become very apparent how removed our society has become from their food when they have all these questions. And, you know, you and I, who grew up in the industry, um, we, we sometimes, I think, take a lot of these things for granted because we just know them and we don't realize how uh, maybe knowledgeable we are on the situation. So um, I, wanted to, I wanted you to kind of maybe give, and I don't want to say a brief explanation, but, you know, a, a good overview of, of, the, of the disruptions that are happening in the supply chain right now. Right. Yeah. I've talked to people all across the industry and, you know, we haven't seen a disruption like this in agriculture and it's really having waves across the supply chain all the way from pasture to plate on both ends of the spectrum and i'm lucky i feel like i grew up and had the exposure um to broad, a broad spectrum of the industry having a cow calf and stalker stalker and feeder industry experience you know i was in a packing plant at a young age and then studied mm -hmm. in-depth meat science and and now in my young career i have the opportunity to work with you know parts of the supply chain had the opportunity to see that so when COVID hit when coronavirus started spreading across. You know, we saw a lot of social distancing measures taking place, a lot of precautions, um, a lot of trying to be ahead of the curve, um, if you will, mm -hmm. and trying to do that. Um, and so there, things were slowing down in the supply chain, whether it be distribution or processing, whatever that might be. Um, but when things really started hitting, things started shutting down. And one of the biggest things that hit us um, was practically overnight in some areas, restaurants and food service, including schools, hotels, conventions, shut down. Now our existing food distribution system is intended and the logistics are made to distribute food to restaurants, retail grocers, and food service. And when two of those three arms shut down, you know, that that's right. going to wreak havoc on the whole system. 
Um, and so we had people that were scared um, or uncertain about what was going to happen. And so everybody went to stock their pantry. And so when all of that simultaneously happened, that's when we saw the pictures everywhere, the stories and the headlines of empty stores at the grocery shelves. Right. Um, and it wasn't just toilet paper has kind of got the headlines, but it was fresh right, foods, right. Uh, uh -huh. produce, fruits, vegetables, um, meats, um, beef and dairy um, all across the spectrum. You know, everybody was stocking up, panic buying and the distribution channels could not keep up with that. Right. So the, you, the grocers had ordered, you know, so many cases of toilet paper, milk and dairy meats and only, all of that only so much could fit on a trailer load. And so you had all of this product that couldn't necessarily be packaged for grocers or retail. Um, and what could be, they were trying to put it all through the warehouse, but it still has to be inventory. You know, only so much can go through that warehouse. That's kind of a bottleneck there. And so when that happened, grocers were panicking to stock their shelves and the limited supplies of things that were out there, they started paying more for it. Right. Right. Because there's a shorter supply. I'm going to pay more to be able to get it sure, to sure. stock my shelves. Right. And so then that goes back to the processors. Well, the processors are like, okay, well, let's try to get more in, out there. But at the same time as coronavirus as COVID-19 is going around, their employees are getting sick. Sure. Right. Their employees are getting sick. They're having to space them out, adhere to social distancing standards that were being enforced by state governments, departments mm -hmm. of health, um, local governments saying, Hey, no, you need to space your employees out. You need to have testing procedures in place. And a lot of cost goes into slowing the lines down, putting in those personal protective equipment measures, whatever that might be. And so as those things slowed down and illness rates continued to rise, we saw some plants shutting down for a couple of days, temporary shutdowns. I want to emphasize that, right? Nobody's been long-term shutdown, especially kind of on the beef side. It's been a right. couple of days at a time. And then what happened then is like, well, when, this, when the chains slow down, when the processing capacity shuts down, well, then you've got a backup of cattle. They're ready to finish. You know, they're finished. They're ready to go to slaughter. Well, now they're able to buy fewer of those in the feedlot. But when you get an oversupply of cattle, the oversupply coming into that bottleneck, the price is going to drop because there's more cattle than what there is sure. capacity for. It, it's basic economics. I mean, it's just the law of supply and demand. Right. That, you'd think that, it. You know, you'd think it was basic. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a. You asked me to con, you know put it in five minutes. That's the you know the short of what happened as all of this started to unfold. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And, and then we've seen since that time, um, that was in April here coming up on the end of May, we'd start to see that capacity come back online. Um, all uh -huh. of the plants have reopened at one point in time and we're starting to get back to closer to normal capacity, but they're still saying it would be months and months before we get back to full capacity because coronavirus is still here. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, we don't, I don't think, I mean, I, I do believe it's, it's waning a bit, but with I can't tell if there's going to be an end or not. I mean, I'd like to think there is, but we don't know anything for sure. I think the thing that I, that really stuck out to me that I didn't really even think about until I heard somebody talk about it was um, I was listening to a podcast with a with an owner of a a pork processor, a pork plant, and talking about if they you know having to adhere to these six foot apart these social distancing guidelines that in itself reduces uh, reduces slaughter capacity because they are not able to work because if if i now i've never been in an actual large scale pack house but 
from what I understand is they work side by side. A lot of the time it's, there's, they're not six feet apart. They're, they're very close. A lot of the cutting up is going, is very, you know, very close to one another. But when you have to space everybody out six feet apart, then that reduces the, the, the ability to have any sort of capacity because, you know, they're not able to work that close and it just slows down. You know, it's such a uh, well-oiled machine that if you put something in like that, put it in some kind of, any kind of hiccup like that in, it just, it really just slows the whole thing down. Yeah. So, yep. Those folks are working side by side. You know, one person makes one cut and the next person down the line makes the next cut. Um, and very well old machine. That's how we can be efficient in our industry and have the capacity that we do. And so slowed down is not shut down. Right. And a lot of right. this yeah. has risen to a lot of people saying, well, we've got a beef shortage or a cattle shortage or mm-hmm. no, we've we've got a distribution problem. Right. It's it's the bottleneck that is causing the problem. And I don't think like I mean, I'm I'm sitting here in my office window. I'm looking out at a field full of cows. We there's not a beef shortage in this country. There has been an issue with the supply chain that honestly, I don't see how it could have been avoided. I mean, with given the information that we've been given, I don't I don't see how it could have been avoided. You know, I think one of the things that kept us from having a beef shortage is that same structure of the industry, right? So if one plant shut down in Texas, you know what, there was another plant or two in Kansas still operating. And if those plants in Kansas had shut down for a couple of days, you know what, those plants in Colorado were still operating. And so we're able with our national network of our supply chain, able to ship product around and keep at least something on the store shelves for people to buy. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 a hard thing because and we'll talk about this a little bit and about how maybe public opinion has been driving people you know there's the there's the fear factor the panic factor and you know how that kind of like builds and almost like a virus does um you know builds upon itself and when you t- talk about people, talk, people start talking about, well, there's a food shortage and then that gets them to panic buying. And then that in turn gets the, the store owners to be limiting the amount of meat that somebody can get in. You know, so I want to talk about how, like, how public opinion and how maybe the media has maybe, I don't want to say uh, exaggerated this, but maybe gotten a little bit of misinformation out there. Yeah, I think it goes back to that negative captures the headline. And right. when I take a step back outside of agriculture and I just look at society today, where, we're, where are we at in America? What's the feeling out there? Well, there's feel, feelings of uncertainty. What's mm-hmm. going to happen? Uh, no one has any answers. We don't know when this is going to end. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week. And so you, in turn, have a lot of people that are just searching for answers. And where do we right. go when we search for answers? We go to Google. Right. Right. We go to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then that's where that, well, as a journalist, as a media outlet, I know I need to not trying to be misleading with it, but what's the headline that I can write that can capture people's attentions? Cause there's so much um, competitiveness. There's so much content out there competing for our attention today that you, that, you know, a journalist or authors have to capture our attention and some of those things. And, and down that way, when we're searching for answers with uncertainty, we want to click that negative headline. Oh, no, we're going to run Are we going to run out of food? Um, and so those things get perpetuated. And as people today are just trusting what they find, um, that's how misinformation tends to get spread. 
Um, when we say, oh no, we are running out of food, nobody stops to check. Where did that information come from? Right. Yeah. And I'll be, I'll be honest, like in the, I'm obviously much better now, but in the early days of social media, I was, I was uh, just as guilty of that as anybody, but you make enough mistakes, you know, you realize what you're saying, you know, what you're finding out is not true. And um, I find myself being much more careful, but I don't feel like that is common. I, I feel like a lot of times people just read it and we have been almost conditioned to feel like what we're being told is the truth when that's not always the case, you know? So, I mean, that's, that, that's something we have to overcome as well. Well, another cultural example that's happened in the last couple of weeks has been the video of pandemic that's gone around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the same thing of, of appealing to that search for answers, right? That fear of the unknown and really trying mm -hmm. to appeal to that emotion. And right. Yeah. I've been so perplexed by people that in agriculture that we're always fighting these anti-agriculture, these anti-livestock agriculture messages saying, check the science, check your sources where you're going. And then here we are sharing messages about the coronavirus pandemic without saying, now, hold on a minute. Where did this information come from? <laughs> yeah. Like, ah. I mean, yeah. Gosh, dang it. Like, I know. I, I get it. Like it is so, it is, it can be incredibly frustrating to, you know, kind of see how these things, but it, it also shows how easily it can be spread because, you know, like you say, when we are going out searching for answers and we're trying to find a re, an exploit, almost a reasonable explanation, but that's not the case. But when we're going out in search of a reasonable explanation, we just go out and we just, we'll, come to the first thing that seems convenient, I think, right. or maybe fits our worldview a little bit. And instead of actually backing up and looking, what's the science behind this? I've seen a lot of this in ag, you know, can kind of bring that cultural example back to agriculture. I've been dealing with this a lot on Twitter and I've had to just silence the app a few times mm -hmm. of cattle producers are angry, right? Mm -hmm. Our prices have dropped while other people mm -hmm. in the segment appear to be making profits. Mm -hmm. And we're searching for answers. And in that, in turn, we're looking for someone to blame. Right. I get it. It sucks um, when your annual income drops by such a significant percentage. Um, sure. And they're looking for somebody to blame and they're going to take that anger out on somebody. And that can, that can get really frustrating. That can get um, into, you know, kind of a bad cycle of, of just, we're looking for somebody to blame and then we're going to go hound on them. And something I've been trying to tell producers during this time is like, yeah, it sucks, but please understand it's not just you, right? It's the entire economy. Everybody is going uh -huh. through this and, right. and we'll make it through it. Right. Yeah. No, I'm glad you, I'm glad you touched on that because that's something that I didn't really plan on talking about. Um, but the effect that this is having on producers, I mean, you work with producers, that's, you know, kind of your, kind of your gig what have you seen like i mean obviously you talk about the negative reactions that you see on twitter and on on social media but like when you're talking to people one-on-one -on -one, what are some of the commonalities of like the struggles and maybe the uncertainties that producers are feeling you know one of the first things that crops up is the concern about why did my value of my cattle drop so significantly in such a short mm -hmm. period of time. Why has this been happening? How can I have more control 
over this. And I think there's a, you know, there's a variety of ways that that conversation can go. But I, I think it goes down to just having a conversation um, mm -hmm. about, hey, what's going on? How can we help to manage the situation that we're in? And I think that that's kind of the one of the big things the conversations have swirled around. There's a lot of underlying conversations that are going on there. Um, one of the big things I think that makes it difficult to understand in rural America is that rural America has been slower to be hit by this coronavirus pandemic, mm -hmm. COVID-19, mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. the urban areas. And I even see, I mean, I've been stuck in my rural town since this thing happened. I haven't right. been to Denver. I haven't been to the office. I haven't been to town since before St. Patty's Day. Mm -hmm. And so even myself, I've caught myself thinking, what's going on here? I mean, I see these stories and headlines from New York. I've never, I've not seen anybody sick in my day-to-day -day interactions. Uh -huh. And so still, I think that it not being a physical thing that we can see makes that doubt, that seed of doubt really kind of grow and flourish of yeah. what are we, what are we doing here? What are we dealing with? Why are we having to go through this? I, that, that hits home to me because, you know, I work in healthcare as well. And, you know, we had a prep plan at our facility for what was going to happen. We planned on having X number of ventilators ready. You know, we were ready for the worst to happen. And then we're waiting and keep waiting. And that, I think that's a common thread in, in rural America is we we're waiting for this, you know, this disaster to happen. And we're seeing it on the news. We're seeing it in New York. We're seeing it in Chicago. We're seeing it in Detroit, but it's not here in Cuba, Missouri, you know, and it's not in rural Colorado. Um, you know, so that's, that's a really hard thing. And like it even, and I, I don't know, I don't know a solution for this. I hate to talk about something and not have a solution for it. But at the same time, I mean, it's still worth talking about that we like, we feel like it's something that's happening to them and not us, you know? So, I mean, it almost is like it widens that divide even more and that makes things even tougher, you know, and, and the way, you know, our kind of dialogue between rural and urban is, is already strained, you know? So this, I think, makes it even harder. So, I mean, I, like I said, I don't, I don't have a solution, um, but, you know, these are the issues that we're dealing with. Right, Jason, I, I get messages anywhere from six to 10 um, advocates in agriculture that I work with every day, every day for the past eight weeks. And I have said, I don't know more in the past <laughs> eight weeks than I have my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, and then that makes like, I'm sure that's stressful for you as well. I mean, to not to tell somebody that is looking to you for answers. I don't know because you don't know, like we don't know. There's, there's a lot we don't know. We just have to kind of do our best to move along. And then I, I don't, I, that's the only solution that I've been able to come up with is just do your best with what you got. And I guess it's probably the best advice for any time, but none so more than now. Right. You know, it's, yeah, I've gotten on my Instagram and kind of had to vent a little bit of that frustration of, I want to help people. That's what my job is, is when people come to me asking for resources, I say, here's what the experts have given me to, to give you. And when I don't have that, Oh, that's incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah. But I say, you know, one, the, we can manage how we react to situations. And yes, we, exactly. We can control that. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I've been trying to, 
in my own personal life, try to like gauge my responses based on that. Like, you know, you cannot always control your, what's going on around you, but you can, like you said, you can control how you react to it. I mean, be, and that's, I think that's pretty good advice for any time, you know, not just now, because who knows what the next big thing is going to be, right? You know, hopefully it's not as catastrophic as this, but <laughs> we sure hope not. And, you know, fortunately yeah. throughout all this, I am able to, what I can control is I can still get my training miles in and I can still yeah. go out there and be running on the dirt roads, even after a long day at work. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I do want to talk to you about that. Like I am, I'm very intrigued about your, and we're going to kind of shift here a little bit um, topics, but I'm very intrigued by your, your, your love for running and training and, you know, you do it in the pictures you take are, are amazing. The, the trails you get, you run on are, are make me very jealous. I'll, I'll say that right now. And uh, you know, so how did that start for you? Like, was that something that was always a part of your life or did that kind of come to when you moved out West? Um, so to be honest, I started my running, um, in grad school. So all mm. the students, grad students in the animal science department, we would go down to the beer market and they'd hold a 5k every Monday and they'd give us a free pint of beer. <laughs> no, as a grad student, absolutely. Whatever it took, right? Yeah. Right. But it was, I moved to Montana and okay. right out my back door, I had 75 miles of single track dirt trails connected up the continental divide. And I had some friends invite me to do a relay, um, out in Napa Valley. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. You know, so we did a 24 hour relay out there and I was at the time, I was like, you know, three miles. That's, I was doing really good to do that. And as I got out there and exploring the mountains, exploring the trails, and I figured out that, you know, there were races out there that allowed you to do that all day, literally all day long. Um, that's kind of been not only a way of, to explore everything around me, you know, I go up in the mountains on a weekend and I just explore the mountain scenery and the environment that's out there and being able to be absorbed in that but also it's a way to get it to release um i sure. can be very tuned out during a run and come back completely refreshed even after 28 to 30 miles of running yeah i mean i run to not to the extent that you do but you know i'm relatively new to the game you know i've been doing it serious for a, a little well, about a year and a half now and i can attest to what you're talking about as far as being able to a way to you can feel like absolute crap you know you had a crappy day at work you know things just couldn't just be totally going off the rails and you can go out for a run and you know as hard as it may be you know on your on your body as far as you know working your you know your body um and then come back and you feel it's it, it's it's almost like paradoxical that you feel refreshed you know after you work so hard i mean it's it's a it's a really i didn't understand it until i started doing it myself and i mean it's absolutely a a stress relief for me and to like kind of leave the world behind I, I i love it you know and i can tell the difference on a day where i feel like i should have ran and i didn't and you know i i can just kind of feel that kind of balled up energy and it it, it, it needs to go somewhere. So um, I'd rather put it into something like that than, you know, where, where, you know, another place it could go. Right. And I relate a lot to, you know, most of your podcast guests that are talking about mental health because it, mental 
it's a big part of mental health is having exercise and just being able to exercise your brain in that way. But mental strength is a huge part of when you get up into endurance sports, um, when you become an endurance athlete, um, Sure. the longest race, I guess your guests can't see the background on this interview for me, but right. this is a mountain in Idaho on the continental divide that I spent 16 hours climbing. Uh, no we kidding. Ran, and we ran on the continental divide for six, finished in 16 and a half hours for a hundred kilometer, 62 mile race. Um, and then this summer, if it isn't canceled, I'm training for my first hundred mile race and that'll be overnight, 24 hours at least of running. Is it, is it going to be on in the mountains too? Uh, it'd be in the black Hills of South Dakota. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And so the so, mental game, the mental training is just as big a part, if not bigger, uh, of, as the physical part of training. Right. So tell, I mean, I, hundred miles just seems like unfathomable to me like but at, at the same time three miles used to be, you know seem unfathomable to me you know so i mean you know it's all relative so like what i'm just how do you like how do you keep your body fueled during that 100 mile race i mean how long how long will 100 miles take you um like how long will goal goals around 24 hours okay. um, for being able to do that when you get into something like that endurance distances um, I'm breaking it down into five, six, seven mile increments between eight stations. Um, okay. And, and so you're, okay, it's five minutes. What am I going to do? Or five miles. What am I going to do in the next five miles to get me to that next point? And then that next point, those are the milestones that you have to break that monumental task down into. And of course, if you follow my social channels, I'd tell you that beef is my primary fuel. Um, throughout training and being able to do that, but that's not going to give you your brain and your muscles glucose that they need to be going on right. for hours on that. And so, you know, I've actually got a pile of just sugary foods that I carry throughout there and also okay. some fats and some proteins that are throughout that. But so in those endurance, you have to, you know, a lot of endurance athletes will focus on, okay, what are my calories that I need per hour? Um, so there's a lot of planning that goes into that. And how are you going to get that in a way that's not going to upset your stomach in the middle of of the, right. the game and then what's plan B when it does. And then your electrolytes, cause you don't want to get dehydrated out there in the middle of the day or the middle of the night um, and cramp up and, and not be done. And then are you drinking enough hydration? And there's a lot of planning that goes into that, but you have to stay on top of your mental game throughout all of those hours to keep consuming all of those calories um, just to keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's remarkable that you're able to do that. And did you ever, I mean, did you ever think that this would be something that you would, you would be into? I mean, it just, it seems crazy to me. Uh, you know, I roll my eyes now and people say, I don't even like to drive that far when I'm <laughs> I know, <them."> I know. <laughs> right. But I, you know, I, there was probably a point in time where I had said that too, but it's just really grown on me. And not only that exploration, that adventure part of it, but just that challenge, it's something to continue to shoot for, you know, even throughout my career, all of my work and travel, you know, I'm traveling up to 70, 70 meetings and presentations a year, but running is always that solace that I can come back to. And it's opened me up into an entire community outside of agriculture. It's helped me have a better understanding of how to be a, how to be an advocate, how to be a communicator for how our food is grown today. Right. So something else I want, and this is shifting a little bit and um, kind of in the same vein as your training, but I heard you talk about something. I think it was on a podcast, one of your own podcast. I believe it was when you had the one you had with the, uh, with the dietitian a few weeks ago. And you talked about you're in some running groups on Facebook or wherever it was. And you were talking about being a 
plant-based diet. And you said, well, I'm on a plant-based diet. Um, you know, and like when I hear plant-based diet, I'm like, well, we only eat plants. That's what I, that's, that's what I think of, you know, but I mean, you're on a plant, but I mean, just because you consume protein, I mean, it's like you say, it's like a quarter or a third, you know, I mean, up around there and then you know, the rest of it should be. So, I mean, I just, I just thought of that. And that's a, that's a really interesting because you talked about, you know, beef being a big part of your calories throughout training, obviously not when you're running, but you know, in your preparation. Um, so I, I talk about that just, just briefly, because I think that's a lot when people hear the, the term plant-based diet, they, they think of maybe plant-based proteins and that's a big difference. Yeah, let me step on some toes in agriculture here just a moment. <laughs> we talk about growing healthy food for you know feeding the planet. Are we always that embodiment of a healthy lifestyle? Right, and that's yeah, I, we're not. It, yeah, no, no, we're not. I know I've talked about this before, and yeah, it's absolutely the truth. So I think one of it's a big accountability of are we practicing what we preach, um, mm -hmm. and that was one of the big things. And, and running forced me to do this. But when you start training 30 plus miles a week, you know, upwards, and now where I'm pushing 60 plus a week right now in my training, you have to eat right and being able to do that. And so that's where I started working with registered dietitians. And so for those who don't know, there's a difference between nutritionists and registered dietitians. So I went to yes. school and I studied as a nutritionist for ruminant nutrition. But and when we get into human nutrition, um, registered dietitians are going to be those science-based professionals that have to go through extra credentials and be held accountable for the advice that they give versus anybody mm -hmm. practically can get an online certification to call themselves sure. a nutritionist. And so I was talking to Nicole Rodriguez. She's a dietitian that I work with and a beef advocate just outside of New York City. And we were talking about the whole plate. Uh, we may point and laugh at U.S. dietary guidelines, but you know what? That's a plant-based diet. Quarter of the plate, mm -hmm. a quarter of the plate's protein, and that's about mm -hmm. 30 grams of protein, mm -hmm. about a three mm -hmm. to four ounce serving of cooked beef. And I, you know, I've always eaten beef. My family had a freezer full of beef when I was growing up. And yeah, I could eat protein, protein, protein. But when I started training and running longer distances, it's those micronutrients that you also have to worry about. And so, you know what? Half that plate being fruits and vegetables is really important for a lot of those green leafy vegetables, all of those minerals and vitamins that you're going to get from those things. And beef is a huge, huge part of that in getting that sure, nutrition. Sure. But then you've also got your whole grains. You know what? Uh, low carb can go as long as it wants to, but if I'm running 16 hours of time, I need some carbohydrates in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then dairy as well also has a good, a lot of good source of nutrients. And so when I say I'm plant-based, you know what? 75% of that plant plate I just described, that's U.S. dietary guidelines. That's plant-based. 75% of that plate comes from plants. And I see a lot of advocates for agriculture, you know, say that tongue in cheek and say that in a demeaning manner, a condescending mm -hmm. manner towards other people mm -hmm. that may choose a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle. Yeah, I'm, I'm original plant-based. My cows eat plants and I eat the cows, right? I don't like people doing that. Um, I say it <laughs> sincerely of, yeah, I'm, a, I'm on a plant-based diet. 75% of my plate is plants. And when I say I'm the beef runner, people have taken it to the extreme, literal saying, well, you only eat beef. And I'm like, no. I wouldn't survive very long if I was just doing that. And so I, sure. I take it to heart, but I'm also living by example. If I'm going to be out there telling people that, you know, beef is part of a healthy, sustainable lifestyle, I, I better live it myself. Well, and I think it's, I think it's very, if you really dissect it, if you think of, it really speaks to the power of beef and that it, it can pack all of that 
as such a small portion of of the overall diet you know it being you know it's so nutrient dense that it doesn't take that much of it you know you have to have some other stuff to get all that other stuff you know the like micronutrients but there's so much you know that protein um i just i i feel like that speaks to its its power and it, it, its density mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i've worked with a lot of uh, producers and we go and we bring a registered dietitian in and talk nutrition of the beef product. And then it's really funny. We'll go and eat a group meal afterwards. And one of the big things is we realized you don't have to have a 12, 16 ounce steak. In mm -hmm. fact, mm -hmm. you're eating more than your body can utilize at that sit down meal. And you know what? Right. I can put a lot more money in my pocket for the next meal and eat a six to eight ounce steak and be just as satisfied and not over full and eat the rest of my plate. And every time after we talk to that dietitian, I'll sit down and I'll see everybody at the plate at, at the table go, okay, maybe I don't have to order that 12, 16 ounce tonight. <laughs> it's hard. Like that's really hard to do, but you're, you're, you're a hundred percent right. When, you know, you can only, you know, your body can only utilize so much protein at a time. And, you know, I think it, I think it also speaks to, you know, it'll make that beef go longer too. If you can, and I found myself lately, you know, we, we are fortunate enough. We have a freezer full of beef and I've found myself lately, you know, not consuming as much and being able to take it for lunch a couple of days a week, you know, type of thing. And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to be more, uh, you know, maybe not so much at one sitting, but be able to spread it out over many meals. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's a reasonable way to incorporate beef in a big way, but also be healthy as well. Right. Yeah. It's packed. Um, beef has, you know, more than 10% of 10 essential nutrients um, mm -hmm. in our diet for less than 10% of our calories every day. So I'd say it's a 10, 10, 10. Um, right. And it really is that nutrient dense package. And you don't get that in other protein sources the way that you do beef. Um, there's definitely room on the plate for all kinds of protein sources. Uh, you know, I eat a lot of fatty fish during, during the week. Um, mm -hmm. And I love some good pork chops and bacon, right? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. But it's the mix of all of those things that come together. And you know what, pushing myself to the extreme and through those endurance sports really brings those small problems to life if you're not eating right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, well, great. Well, Ryan, I want to be respectful of your time tonight. I really excited that to get this out to people and people get to listen to this podcast. Um, my wife was very excited to hear who, who I was talking to tonight. Like usually I'll tell her and she's like, Oh yeah, who's that? You know, Oh, it sounds really interesting. I said, Oh, I'm talking to Ryan Goodman tonight. She said, Oh, I can't wait to listen. You know, she never says that, you know? So, uh, that was, uh, she's, you know, She's been trying to push the idea of a plant-based diet like like you're talking about towards me more lately. And, uh, you know, I've been very reluctant, but now I'm really starting to see what everyone, you know, what reasonable, reasonable people are talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, really excited to get this out. Um, I want you to give the opportunity where people can find you online. Yeah, Jason, appreciate it. Um, anybody can find me online across social media as Beef Runner. Uh, it's mm -hmm. beefrunner.com, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever that might look like. Um, and then the podcast as well. We've talked about some of those similar, but I, episode 42 would be relevant to this situation or this conversation. I'm um, talking about that disinformation online. So we talked to a, a social scientist from Bayer that had really looked into the science uh, behind disinformation campaigns. 
um, mm -hmm. specifically in the area of GMOs. And so that might be a, a good related kind of conversation to this that expand upon some of these things that we're hearing and, and how do we sort through what is accurate information, what is not. Yeah, very cool. I mean, you guys do a really good job, you know, you along with 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 Carrie, um, when you guys are together, um, it, you guys do you guys do a really great job. And it's it's a really great resource for folks. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and thanks for having me on this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, really excited. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.